We've been about this work, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, shared through the voices of a white woman and a black man. We bring lived experiences. We have pursued DNI progress for most of our professional lives. We use Crazy and the King to cover news, tips from colleagues, and host incredible guests. Listeners, count on Julie and I to transparently drive the conversation. We thank you for rocking with us. Check it. Julie, kick off the show. Welcome to Crazy and the King. Uh, I know we don't use video, but this right here is kind of like my laying down. Like you ever felt like you have been traveling so much that you are just tired. Jay, let me tell you, when we got back from Wreckfest, I don't even know if you know this, but when we got back from Wreckfest, literally the day after I got on another plane and had to do a five hour flight to Los Angeles. So as we enter into this celebratory month of August. Uh, let's say my, uh, my second princess's birthday is this month. Um, my oldest sister's birthday is this month. And in many places, this is when we begin to, to kind of wind down the summer. So have you had a good summer? Yeah, it's been a great summer. Obviously, enjoyed our time together at Wreckfest and um, did a little sightseeing thereafter. Um, so, you know, you know me. We try to enjoy Europe as much as we can. So, got to see some new places, and yeah, not too bad. And glad to have a lots of celebrations for you in August as we um, wrap up the summer and start thinking into. What does fall conference season look like and and what does uh, our our end of the year look like? Yeah. And I got to tell you, you know, real funny story about Wreckfest. I reached out to Charlotte and I said, um, you know, will you send me a list of like potential hotels that I can stay at uh, while I'm there? And she sends me this incredible list. But what I got to tell you, Jay, um, I don't know if I've ever said this out loud before, but like three of the five or six hotels she sent me were like these real rustic country farm like themes. Does she not know how bushy you are? Yeah, we ain't with the whole like <laughs> farm and horns on the wall and yeah, I, I, I wasn't with that. But what I am with is when we get a chance to revisit some of the conversations that we've had and. A couple of months back, you and I, we talked about the announcement of Sheryl Sandberg and her uh, deciding that she was going to leave Facebook. And we also talked a bit about, you know, culpability and responsibility around her presence at the organization and whether or not history is going to be kind to her. In that conversation, we talked about lean in. And what I did not ask you, and, and I was thinking about this when when I revisited that conversation in my head. What I was thinking about is um, I never got your opinion. I never I don't think we really sussed out how you felt about lean in as a white woman who is a professional, who is also a mother. Did lean in resonate with you the way that I think the media portrayed that it resonated with so many women? And I'm not asking through a tone of indictment, I'm wondering, did Lean In move you, Julie Sowash, to feel like 
I can be a better, more present professional woman and I'm not sacrificing the things that are important at home. Yeah, I don't know that it ever, I don't think anything that we do as professional women who are also mothers will ever take away mom guilt. Like if someone can figure out the cure to mom guilt, um, the world will be a much, much better place. And so at the time, Lena and I thought was uh, incredibly influential to me. Um, it, probably most importantly, importantly, thinking about the way that I structured my life so I could lean into my career more, um, which was the move to working at home full time, um, being able to be there at, at very important things for the kids um, and in the everyday. That was the biggest change I think that I learned. And I wonder, I think maybe a lot of women would say that that's not leaning in, that's stepping back. But for me, it actually gave me a better work-life balance. So when I was present at work, I could be fully present and not have to worry about the things a lot of moms who go into the office every day do. Do you think that that was an advantage for you? And, and you said that that's a little bit counter to what a lot of women would think. Why do you feel that way? Did you have some of those, uh, you know, offline conversations, talk about it maybe with your family, some of the colleagues uh, inside of the organization? How, how do you get to that point of your being a little bit different than what a lot of other women might think? Um, yes, definitely always conversing with, with moms who are also professionals. But I think that is what I could see happen to me. And how I knew I had to spend my vacation time, my sick time, my weekends, when I had to go into the office and have my butt in the seat from eight to five, how dramatically my life shifted and my relationships with my kids shifted when I was home every single day, even though I was upstairs on a call in the office, um, that kind of thing. I had more freedom to take care of personal things. So when I was at work, I got to lean into my work fully and not had that distracted brain of what do I have to take care of at home? That for me was a game changer and made me a, a better leader and a more successful executive. Do you, uh, when you think about the work that you all are doing, um, you would consider it to be professional services, correct? Got it. Um, and, and the reason I ask that is because you have a take, you have context, you have a position, a stake in in how a number of women show up. I don't know how many professional women there are, you know, 10 million, 20 million, 30 million inside of our workforce. But there are a number of them. But there are also this there's also this conversation that really centers around the tech space. Very, very heavy. A lot of what we talk about in the DNI world, for short in the DNI world is um, attached. It's connected in uh, an intricate and intimate way with the technology space. And over in the technology space, there's still some that feel like they are a part of a vicious cycle. There's a lot of women in the tech space that just feel like, you know, I could continue to stay in this, uh, I don't want to call it a worker bee role, but, but they can be a programmer. They can be an R&D. Um, there's just this cycle where they don't necessarily have enough people to see above them that, can sh that, that shows them that there's an opportunity for them, one, to lean in 
and then have a promising result or, or an outcome as a result of that leaning in. Meaning, rather than stay in the worker role, being the engineer, being the developer, being the designer, being in that hands-on role, a lot of them are shifting over into management. And some feel like that's a vicious cycle. And I don't know, as a man, I feel like that's a good thing because I'd like to see more women in management and then move into leadership roles where they have P&L responsibility for thousands, tens of thousands of hundreds, tens of thousands of people. I'd like to see more women in management. Am I like chauvinist in that? Am I being too male centered? Where do you see, you know, that opinion, that feeling of mine? Yeah, I mean, I think that we should, I think tech is a visual demonstration of a much larger problem, right? It is the microcosm that we choose to look at because there have been powerful women in tech and worker bees in tech who have used their voices to start to help us from an outside perspective understand what that vicious cycle looks like, right? Um, And I'm not sure that I would ever say wanting more women into leadership could be seen as as chauvinist. Um, I think it's the challenge of how do we support women who are going through that vicious cycle and and, and expect them to stay in it. Um, and not just get fed up with the bullshit and decide it's time to move into a different career path. It's time to move into a different industry. It's time to move to a different company where I can actually get that opportunity. Um, That is asking a lot. And I think, you know, just as we talk about other underrepresented communities, how do you continue to ask for the same thing, knowing that change is so slow and it is so grinding but that's you know but we say to each other every day that's why we do the work the the change is slow and the grind is slow yeah thank you for that you know i appreciate um you're allowing us to kind of revisit this conversation because sometimes julie when we are conversing back and forth with one another actually oftentimes while we may record and capture certain content when when i go back and think about the conversation, I'm always saying to myself, wow, I wish I would have raised this issue or I wish I would have been this vulnerable so that listeners could hear that vulnerability and then themselves think about how they are showing up in the workplace. So for those of you who might have missed our conversation, Julie and I talked about Sheryl Sandberg's announcement, and I think that episode aired sometime in early June. So you can go back to crazyintheking.com and you can grab that episode. You can absolutely grab all of our episodes at crazyintheking.com. You can sign up for our newsletter there. You can also subscribe to Crazy in the King via iTunes, Spotify, and a number of other incredible distribution platforms. So listen, that'll do it for Jay and I, because we could talk for an hour, but we have a guest this week. So we're going to do a commercial and then we're going to allow the guest to talk for something close to an hour. We'll be right back. Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose and connect us all. 
We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change Podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. All right, welcome back. I am so excited to welcome our guest this week, Chris DeSantis, author, speaker, consultant. Um, Chris uses organizational behavior practices and an inclusive others focused approach. I love that. To help companies identify and address assumptions that get in the way of growth. Uh, specifically, some will talk today about um, generational changes and generational friction friction at work. Um, he also has a podcast with a very funny podcast partner. Um, I'm going to make sure we dig into what that podcast is all about as well. Chris, welcome to Crazy in the King. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being here. Hey, Chris, I got to jump in real quick. Sure. So first of all, Julie, uh, she highlighted that others focused approach. I loved that phrase uh, because to me, that means that you are uh, decentering yourself. And when I right. say you, you are suggesting that as often as we can, or certainly in more instances than we have, that we decenter ourselves and we focus on others. How do you frame a definition, a description, a characterization of that powerful phrase, others focused approach well for for a while there i was under I, I was under the um i made the choice of thinking in terms about perspective taking meaning that you take the perspective of others but the limitation of that is it's it's predicated on the assumptions we have of others based on what little we might know so i end up categorizing so for instance i see i see um uh uh, uh a very successful female on front of me. I have all of these things I will say about her in my mind, but I don't know if that's true. So that perspective taking has a limitation. I think what I really am looking for now is perspective seeking, is, is to say, who are you by virtue of asking versus who I assume you to be by virtue of the experiences that I had that up to this point in time. So I think it's, it's it, I hate to say the word behooves, but who gets to use that every once in a while? But I, I think it behooves us to really think about, okay, uh, step back about, test your assumptions. I'm not saying that we're right or wrong in our assumptions. I'm saying that we have to test or qualify them before we get into deciding what they need from us. That testing of assumptions is like super strong because the way that you just defined it, it really coincides well with how do we establish belonging? Yes. How do we establish culture? How do we establish true inclusion? True yes. inclusion. Yes. We, we, we think inclusion is, uh, is interesting because we are, we are biased towards the visual of inclusion as opposed to the larger perspective of who's in front of us in terms of their differences. 
So I th I'm a fan of embracing a broader spectrum of difference and being visually different is only one aspect of that. Yeah, very much so. And, and I think it speaks to what we really have to think about when we think about the, the future of work, right? Yes. We as leaders have to get to know our people because yes. our assumed our assumptions are not their actual lived experience. Mm -hmm. So let's kind of talk about that, right? How sure. have you, how have your views changed? Let me say it this way, um, regarding the future of work. One of our favorite phrases we yes. use uh, way too often right now, um, kind of since the start of COVID to now. Right. Right. Well, it's, I, I've been, I do a lot of home. I had a lot of time over COVID as everyone did. And so I, I've read a bunch of these books on the remote work or the future of work and all of these things. And so uh, I, I see the world as going to be, it's going to be hybrid in some quality. It has to be. It's just because we were successful during the pandemic in terms of being able to operate outside of a outside of the office real estate. So if that is the case, and it, there, if we are successful, then I think, and that we introduced a number of people into the workplace who only experience that, then in fact, there's an opportunity here to leverage that. I also believe though, at the same time, we need each other. We are social creatures by, by, by evolution. So we're going to have to meld these these things together. But I what I do, don't see is we don't have clear metrics of how we measure your performance. So therefore, what happens is I'm going to have some people in the office that I'm going to like better, even though they may not be better just because I see them. So I think the challenge is how do I how do I be remote and still be in the game? Because I think we're going to be biased. That's just but Chris. Chris, yes. Chris let, let me jump in. And, and, and you, you actually, that's interesting. When you say we don't have metrics, right? But don't we? Don't we have metrics? Oh, is we it, don't have. Is it? Well, I mean, but isn't you know uh, X number of cold calls still X number of cold oh, calls? You're, is you're, it? Yeah, you're viewing you're viewing tangible metrics, uh, but I'm, okay. But, but um, I. Having listened to your show, you're dealing a lot with knowledge workers. You're, in fact, our, our audience is knowledge work. Those are abstract measures. How do you measure innovation, creativity, uh, engagement, uh, criticality, judgment? These are all abstractions. Now, we have performance appraisals, which are horrible because they're just a series of biased views, subjective views, as determined to, say, to, to appear objective to appear objective. Now, when you have a biased tool that is subjective and you have people in the office you're measuring against people who are not in the office, I will argue that the people out of the office will never come up to snuff relative to that, or they will just because they don't have the annoying habit of somebody in the office. Do you follow? <laughs> no, as someone who has run a fully remote team for the past 10 years, I could not agree with you more. Yeah. Um, some of the, the worst mistakes I made a long time ago were allowing lack of relationship yeah. and lack of good communication to result in me losing good talent. That was mm -hmm. one of the hardest lessons I learned as a remote leader. And it's so interesting for me to now hear leaders in this in this place that i was 10 years ago try to figure it out 
Because mm-hmm. let's be honest, so much of what we're really talking about with knowledge workers and appraisals is also going to be relationship based. Yes. And so some of my team is much better at the communication and telling me, you know, hey, I did all of this great stuff. Hey, I want to talk to you about this. Whereas the others I have to sort of pry it out of. Mm -hmm. But the biggest lesson I learned is that that is not the same as them not doing their work. It's just them not communicating to me in the way that I like to be communicated in. Yes. Um, you're, You're hitting a very interesting point is that when we don't have information, we fill it in. Do you see what I'm saying? We just fill yes. it in. So the absence of their uh, of their ex- having an exchange with us, we could read that as, oh, they're aloof, they're distant, they don't care. But if somebody ex- has an exchange with us with some rapidity and they're friendly about it, oh, they must care. You see, we're defining the the their deliverable by virtue of their interaction with me and not the deliverable itself. Chris, uh, can you tell us more about the work that you do and then we'll get into your book? Sure, sure. My background is in organizational behavior. As, and what that means is um, originally I was I did more consulting work. I go into firms and I talk about things around performance. Basically, the, my moniker would be uh, play well together. So in the sense that we have to work together in this world. So how do we do this in a way that everyone comes away engaged and I think respected to a great degree? And so I do a lot around uh, how, to, how do you present? How do you, how do you give feedback? How do you lead? How do you play on teams? How do you mentor? Uh, gender differences. Although I have trouble giving gender differences talks just because uh, I don't, I don't see action with that when I have a mixed audience. I know I'm digressing. I prefer gender talking to only women. Because they are they they are looking for actionable things, and they will they will talk about it if the men are absent, and if men are in the room, uh, they are they are less likely to do that because they are perceived as somehow. Uh, I think I don't know if it's a is it a, a sense of I will be seen as weak if I have this as a question because the men don't have this question. So in that sense, and do I share this because uh, can I share this with them because I trust these other people in the room who don't? You see what I'm saying? There's it's a very interesting anyway i know i digress there and then i talk about uh, this 18 years ago i noticed young people coming into the office were markedly different than than i was when i arrived at the office and firms were coming to me and saying why are these kids this way and i didn't know and uh and they wanted to change them into them. And I said, that ain't going to fly. Gonna, you don't want to do that. You don't want, I'm a big fan of accommodating and embracing difference because that has, that has palatable advantage. But to change somebody to be just like me becomes redundant in an echo chamber. So. Yeah. And, and I think that, I mean, that's such a good point. And I think that we are fighting that every single day right now as we think about generational change in our workforce and you know every generation thinks what that they're smarter faster better than the one before them and the one after them is just dumb um and just doesn't get it and so when you're thinking about um how and I, just for a second, back to the hybrid approach, because I think mm-hmm. that's where so many of us are are going to be living for a long time. Um, how how are we seeing different generations interact in a hybrid and be affected by a hybrid philosophy? Yes. Well, what you're talking there is might not be so much. There is a generational issue here, but there's also a stage of life issue here. You see, in a stage of life, you have different needs. So both of you on this, you are, you have a, a stage of life where you have mastery of what you do. You're good at what you do. 
So is the place you do it as critical to doing it? Because you've already established your relationships, you've already established your, your expertise, so I can do this anywhere. Now, if I'm somebody who's very new to the workplace, I do not have that mastery and I have to learn at the feet of another because most 70% of what we learn is through the observation and doing it with others. They have a need to have some level of presence because we learn by observation in a way that is not necessarily conveyed in what I would call this flat screen environment that we see here you know, this, this um, um, Zoom or whatever we use. And so in that sense, they need some presence. So the needs vary. Now, the generational distinction might be such that um, the, the, I will call the millennial to some degree is, is collaborative or interdependent by nature. They're children of dialogue, I call them. They like to engage in dialogue. Now, if you are a classic Gen Xer in the sense that you were raised as a latchkey child and you had the experience of being on your own more, you don't require the interaction with others as much. So now we have a separation between us in terms of needs and wants. So this is where there's a, and I'll tell you what the um, Gen Xers always will say to me is that, well, the ones who classify themselves that way will say, hey, these young are so needy. They're so needy. And I think that's not a fair statement. I don't think it's that they're needy. I think they like working with you. You see, a lot of you as parents, I would argue you probably did homework with your kids. You probably help them with their homework. When you start helping people, kids with their homework, it's an act of love. Well, if you do that with any frequency, you start to create the habit of working with somebody. Now, I would argue a, a, a Gen Xer may never have done homework with their parents. And so there's no action here that requires me the interaction and there's no love in the room. So I'll just figure it out myself. You follow how this all plays? So, so when yeah. you, it's, a molding, or it's a melding of both the stage of life and the yep. generational perspective. Which is a great segue to get into your book. The title of such is Why I Find You Irritating, <laughs> Navigating Generational Friction at Work. But you also say that this book is different than others on the topic. Explain to listeners the theme of the book and then why it's different. Yes, uh, what, I've tried to do a lot of homework on this topic. So I, I've got about 60 of these books under my belt. And I think they're all interesting in their own way. And some are not interesting at all. But one of the problems I found with the, where I've tried to do is I try to introduce something that's new relative to the topic. So I go backwards more into this notion of why we generalize, where generalization, com generalization comes from, where stereotyping comes from. How does that play out in the history of the United States? in terms of how do we evolve as a society from the company man to a transactional workplace. Then I overlay the parenting models. I say, well, what are the parenting models that are normative in, each, in the middle class? As I get through all of that, then I start talking about the limitations of this because one of the challenges with this topic is millennial doesn't address all young people. It's an assumption of a title for all young people. And so I, when I talk to people, I, that's one of my major caveats. I'm not talking about everybody. I'm talking about who you think you know. And so in, in that sense, what we, that's what we do. We are sweeping, right? I see young people. And if any one of these young people does something that I think they would do anyway, they must all do that. So, Chris, I, I, I want to interject there for a moment because you, you raise a very interesting point. We've been uttering the phrase or hmm. the moniker of millennials since 2012, 2013, 2014. Around 2018, 2019, we would suggest that the older millennial was around 38, maybe approaching 40. Yes. We are pushing through 2022, 
and entering 2023. Now we're looking at about a 10-year window. Do we still say millennial and people still feel like they think they're talking about the people they think they know as you just described it? Right. That's, it's a good question because I address this as well, is that I don't see what we've done is because humans like to simplify. So we categorize rather, you know, in this age group, right? I'm a big believer in generational waves. You see, the first wave of a generation sort of frames our perception of them. And then the rest of them live under the auspices of the their older siblings, as it were. And so slowly you wash into the next generation. And so it dilutes what, of, what was core to the identity or the perceived identity of that original group. So and so if you think of a millennial, someone who's 40 and at the younger end, who's someone who's 24, these people don't feel they have a lot in common. I don't necessarily think they're incorrect. I think intra-generational, you know, within a generation, I'm sorry, within a generation, they see more variation. But when you look from the outside, you don't make the nuanced difference. You follow? Because we already have a view. And, and so we're looking for just confirmations, confirmation bias of the view we already hold of them. So. So in that sense, so do you, go ahead. So, do, so, so no, it's okay. So do you feel like the potency of uttering the phrase millennial or the reference millennial is still there, or is that for is that is that uttering of millennial losing its potency? Almost like you rarely hear us say generation x you yeah, rarely hear us say baby boomer these days well you do hear baby if you think about this you hear ba boomers and you hear millennials but in both sense you hear them as accusations you don't hear them as descriptors of a, of a group that might have some wonderful qualities but rather an accusation of some failing gen x has always been invisible they've always flown below the radar in fact they never played this game at all they just sort of go along to get along so, but they are, I, I will say as a cohort, they are distinctive. They are distinctive. So, I hope. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I, no, I, I think that's, I, I mean, it's so interesting because there are waves, right? My, yes. I'm at the end of Gen X, the beginning of, of millennials and sort of feel like no one pays attention to me. Um, that's baby. probably the. <laughs> it's probably the X in me. I don't know. Um, yeah, you right. said something I thought that was really interesting. I want to go back to, um, you talked about the company man. Yes. And I think, especially for the first part of the X and, and definitely the boomers were taught that you go to a company, you stay there, you get your retirement, you do your thing. And now we've changed to a, a transactional relationship with our employers. Yes. Let me say it that way. And how does that help us to understand not just the difference between between generations, but how those transactional labor markets are going to impact how we live our lives, how we spend our money, what decisions we make? Yes, yes. Well, let me go backwards to the company man. The company man is 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 almost a relic now, but it was part of the covenant, right? If I work hard, I will have a job for life. Well, you know who's in charge right now? It's the boomers still. While half of us have retired the, at the tops of organizations, these people are still in charge and they are living under, you know, sort of the auspices of that, that model. And so they, when they say, we want you to come back into the office, they are not saying to, uh, this is where the confusion lies. In their minds, they're not doing this to you. They're doing this for you. 
Because the for you is, that's how I built my relationships. That's how I was successful. And if my model worked, why wouldn't it work for you? So they're not, to your point, because uh, on uh, how you speak about this, they're not, they're not embracing the, the change. They're not embracing it. And the more that you resist embracing the change, the more you, I think the more you force people to be uh, revolutionary versus evolutionary. Now, getting to your point about transactional, transactional is scary unto itself because when you have a hybrid world and everyone is in a transactional, like, what can you do for me? Here's what I want in return for that. And then you put that into a remote environment, you make people far more detachable. And so when you have a detachable world, all of a sudden, the, the company, like a Nike, doesn't have to produce anything other than their marketing. So I can, I can subcontract everything out, and therefore, there's no company anymore, except for the name. The, so in that sense, I think one of the challenges with this is it further atomizes society, which is not the direction I want us to go. I think we need to be more interdependent than more independent because we are not uh, we are not individuals living uh, just happen to be living in this country. We're all part of this country. It's, so in that sense, that's one of, one of the challenges with how do you balance this? How do you get create a sense of belonging, as Torin mentioned at the very beginning, that is both respectful but also recognizes that we need each other. Well, one way you do it is you don't allow me to enter into your kitchen. Like you don't, don't let me, don't let me walk into the kitchen, open up the pantry, pull out the Duncan Hines mix and say that I'm going to prepare something tasty for us to enjoy. Like my brownies are lopsided. My cakes are lopsided, <laughs> but you use that phrase. I lopsidedness. Love what is what is lopsidedness mean in the book and not in the kitchen? Yes. Well, it goes to my point. I'll, I'll add on to it because I'm. I think work is a team sport. I think everything you do has complexity. And I, for instance, on this very call, it Torin, you're not our technologist on this call. Julie's our technologist on this call. So I will give unto Caesar what Caesar does. Right in my world of lopsidedness is I want us to start to recognize what are the unique contributions I'm capable of making. And how are they most relevant to the work that I'm doing on the team that I'm on? Measure me against those contributions, not the, not the commoditized contributions of the 10 things that we measure on every team, which is silliness, and allow me to do those things with greater frequency than not. Now what I have is I have complementary skills in this on my team. I then measure you not against the image I have of you in totality, but rather your specific contribution. And this reduces, by the way, this reduces our, 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 those of us who are different. It reduces the bias against us because we're only measuring the aspect of what we do, not the image we have of the person in front of us. You follow? So lopsidedness is the future, in my opinion. Yes, I absolutely love this. I call it Team Unicorn. Yeah. Um, and we put this in, into place a couple of years ago on, on my team is we are all incredibly different people with incredibly yes. different skills and personalities. And sometimes that makes leading that team a lot more difficult in terms yes. of draining, just emotionally understanding where everyone is. But what I've learned is that investment in finding what's missing instead of trying to, so to, to find culture fit or a X number of skill sets has has been a game changer um, for us. And, and I think that 
that's such a great point. Um, and, you know, when you're thinking about how do you embrace the lopsidedness, how do you bring people in who don't necessarily fit into a box? Um, I think I spend a lot of time mentoring and you talked about how, you know, the millennial generation is used to a much more engaged relationship. Um, how do we help bring up the latter part of the millennials and Gen Z, our kids who are entering the workforce now, um, in a productive mentoring way that is doesn't feel belittling um, yes. to them? Well, I, I, in, again, in, in the book, I talk about this in terms of the chapter on mentoring. I had to soften it. I was given feedback that I was a little too harsh with talking about mentoring because I don't, I don't like the way it's organized because we use, we, we've, we've moved mentoring from an organic event that you talk about in reflection. Remember, you don't say I'm going to, you're going to be my mentor in reflection. You say he was my mentor. So in that sense, we, we, we move from an organic model to a, to an assigned model. And the problem when you assign mentoring, you assign intimacy that isn't earned. So I don't, I, I don't like the language of mentoring uh, initially just because, it, for instance, if you're a classic Gen, uh, Gen X, Julie, and you're my assigned mentor, I'm going to start getting intimate with you on day one. Here's what I want. Here's what I feel. And you're going, what? I don't know you. I don't know. What is this? You're too much too soon. So I like the idea of finding an advisor, but I like it to be goal specific, meaning I, I'm not going to take on your life on day one, but I will take on your learning on day one. What is it you need to learn? How can I help you learn? How can I help you? What are the obstacles in your way to doing that? And then what is the, this is what I would call the expectation meeting. Uh, what is, what, what can I do to support your efforts? And what will you do as a consequence of me doing that? Meaning the exchange again. So I think we should be more laser specific in terms of the help of another, because then you can see the output. You see what I'm saying? And then you build on it. If you keep incrementally adding to them in terms of making them better each day, it's going to be a wonderful human being. But to take on a life instantly are too many factors involved. Chris, real quick, before we yeah, uh, sure. get out of here, can you just comment uh, briefly on you, the, the multi-generational workforce? Like when you think sure. about that phrase and the way that you've compiled the book and the mm -hmm. other 60s that you've referenced, what are we missing? Like just kind of sum it up for us. What are we missing in that aspect? Well, uh, the multi-generational workforce is, uh, first of all, I think we're go all going to be working longer. We're all going to be working longer. We all want to make a, a, a contribution. And I think we should uh, embrace the differences that each of us bring to the table. You see, the, the more different we are, the, the broader the perspectives we are. So boomers, we bring doggedness to the table, right? Uh, so, and then I think, uh, because we'll just go, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll stay as long as you need us. As, and so Gen X, I think they bring sort of like, okay, how do you figure this out on your own? I think millennials bring sort of a collaborative uh, sense to the table. I think the, this newest generation will probably bring technology to the table in an integrated way as opposed to just a leveraging event. So the point being is everyone's got something to add. And so rather than challenge them on their difference, well, you are younger, you are older than me, just find out what, to, what can they do that I can't and then bring it in. Find out what they can do that I can't and then bring it in. So as we wind down summer, what's on your reading list? 
Well, I try to read uh, something every week or so. I just finished uh, Your Brain at Work. I thought that was great. I'm on This week, I'm on um, Think Like a Rocket Scientist. So I'm, I'm, I go during waves. I, I go through some of the, I like the brain books for a while now. I'm doing that. So I think that's on my summer list. I have some, uh, I just finished a really interesting book in, in your vein, Social, which is a wonderful book about how we are designed to, to be with others and how those, those others uh, shape who we actually are. Chris uh, DeSantis, I'm sure I speak for Julie. We have appreciated your contribution, author, speaker, consultant. Uh, you can find Chris DeSantis at cpdesantis.com. Again, season Charlie, P is in Paul, desantis.com. Are you on Instagram? Uh, no, no, those would be photos, and I'm, I'm, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> How about Twitter? Twitter's my jam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are, are, are you on Twitter? No, Twitter's political. I don't. I, 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 Twitter's political. <laughs> hey, Jay, hold on. He said uh, Instagram is photos. I don't do that. Uh, Twitter's political. I don't do that either. But what I do do and do it extremely well is send people to cpdesantis.com. Yeah, yeah. That I do yeah. well. And by the way, listeners, if you get there to the website. You will find all of his charm, richness, the contribution to our space, and and you'll see some links to his book as well as his podcast. Chris, we thank you for oh joining uh, Julie and I. This is a privilege. Thank you both. Yes, thank you so much. And uh, let's catch catch our next ad break, and we'll get into her voice. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcast, and now available on YouTube. Our Her Voice segment is where we amplify women making moves. In the spirit of our conversation with Chris regarding organizational behavior development and his incredible book, we wanted to enjoy the strides of achievement, some women who are making some things happen. So we decided to feature some women that are and have done some amazing things. First up, a collection of incredible women compiled by the good folks over at Harvard Business Review. We'll drop a link in our show notes to more than 30 case studies that feature women protagonists recommended by Harvard Business School faculty. Each and every case comes with a teaching note. This collection was developed by the HBS Gender Initiative. Nice. And then next, we're going to highlight the Twitter page of Women of Organizational Behavior. And they're at Women of OB on Twitter. Um, they are signal boosting management research, um, organizational behavior, HR, OT, and related fields by women. No mantles. I repeat, Thank the gods, no mantles. The term refers to all male panels, just in case you didn't know that, and is used to highlight the exclusion of women as subject matter experts. And finally this week, Pratima Aurora. She is the chief product officer at Chain Analysis. 
Chain Analysis actually just raised 170 million. Actually, that was a couple of months ago, but they raised 170 million with an $8.6 billion valuation. Pratima is leading the entire R&D organization, which houses engineering, product, research, design, data science, and Intel ops. She is getting busy for sure. Listen, Jay, this was a great show. We had some incredible women uh, that we were able to highlight, some awesome case studies. Chris was an extreme compliment to that, like a compliment. Listen, we all can do this thing together. I loved his work around multi-generational workforces, his redefinition of millennials, how he framed the belonging and the culture. He pushed the, uh, he even corrected me once. You saw, he low-key flexed on me. He corrected me and I appreciate being corrected. Let me tell you all something. I I know we gotta get out of here, but it's okay to be corrected. Like we had an incredible conversation. Thank you, Jay, for finding him to be a guest. Yep, absolutely. And until then, we're ghosts. We yeah. Oh, wait a minute. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. See, here's another real-time correction. I'm going to close this for now. We close reminding each and every one of you to share the pod with your digital tribe. We absolutely want you to find your voice, build better culture, better teams, better workplaces. For now, Jay and I are ghosts. See ya. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.